Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, GapFest listeners, it's David Plotz. I'm here backstage at the Bell House in Brooklyn, getting ready for the show you're about to hear. John and Emily are tapping away on their computers behind me. Before we start the show, I need to tell you, the Slate Political GapFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Now, on with the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 10th, 2015, the Live at the Bell House edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News is at my far left, and at my near left is your hometown, New York Times' Emily Bazelon. Those cheers were, were those cheers for... uh, That was for both of us. Those for both of you, yeah, yeah. Uh, We are live at the Bell House in in Gowanus. There's a packed house, uh, which we can barely see, but I understand you're packed, so let us know that you're packed right now. And 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 also let let us know if you're packing too, because and I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed. I I've heard tell of your Brooklyn beards before, but I come I come to Brooklyn, I come to Brooklyn, ha! and, and all you one. Brooklynites, you can pull your your mingy little chin hairs in shame because a Washingtonian has the bushiest beard in the house. But so. I think but I think they're thinking like you know the beard like that was, was last yeah, year probably yeah. that's right it's like. That's right. You're the Brussels sprouts and kale of like facial hair. I have and they're Brussels like, we, sprouts. They're like, and they've moved on to like yeah. parsnips yeah. and like all they're kinds like, of things. We live crazy. in Queens. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. On this week's Gabfest, we will talk about the murder of Walter Scott in North Charleston. Will it change what the other murders have not changed? Then we'll talk about President Rand Paul uh, <laughs> and what his presidency will be like. It will be good for you guys, I'm sure. And we'll talk about the Rolling Stone fiasco. We'll autopsy the terrible ridiculousness that, uh, that Rolling Stone foisted upon all of us a few months ago and the very interesting report that's just come out about it. Uh, and of course, we'll have cocktail chatter and we'll have a Q&A with you. Michael Slager, a police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina, on Saturday murdered, I think we can safely say murdered, a person... Walter Scott, a 50-year-old man, he had stopped in a traffic stop for a broken brake light. The video, a video taken by a passerby who did something in the moment that I think we all wish we we have the bravery and, and resourcefulness to do, if we were presented with something similar, made the front page of the New York Times. It has changed, uh, I think, the conversation around police and violence. But we've said this before. So Emily, we have had in the last couple of years just episodes. We have Eric Garner 
Trayvon Martin, which is a slightly different situation, Tamir Rice, uh, and of course, Michael Brown, and now we have Walter Scott is another victim. Why would we think that this will change things in a way that these other deaths did not? Well, this is incredibly clear. And by saying that, I don't want to say that the other cases weren't because I think, you know, Eric Garner's shooting, Tamir Rice's shooting, Michael Brown's shooting became more complicated over time the more we learned about it. But this is very stark. You watch that video and you feel like you're watching a snuff film. And the officer, uh, Michael Slager, was immediately charged with murder. So in some sense, it's a simpler... um, Not immediately. Not immediately. Not immediately. Well, that's it took, true. It, it was took Saturday. A video. It, took it took the a video. video. You're right. That's a really good point. Right. It felt immediate because we didn't know about the shooting nationally speaking. I didn't know about it until the video broke. But you're right. And the other part of the story that I think is should change the conversation, but is perhaps the most unsettling, is that the official report from Slager about this shooting was was full of lies and was the account that one feels like one hears every time there's a police shooting. Oh, this was an armed man. There was a struggle. I had no choice. And the video is just incredibly stark. That's just not true. It's not what happened. That last point you made does strikes me is that he, it seemed like he knew a script to say, I felt threatened. I discharged my weapon, like that he was lapsing into what kind of wasn't just his own making that this is something that was in his head. If this should ever happen, that he knew immediately the script, which which obviously the question at the heart of this is how much of this is a script, both specifically what he said, but also his reaction to the moment, that, a script that is pre-written. Well, I'm, I imagine in his training he learned that script because the Supreme Court has said that the police may use lethal force when they feel threatened or when they think there is a threat to someone else's life. And so I would assume that sort of spelled out and that police know that is what they are supposed to say. Right. I guess what I meant is when you know you weren't threatened, you default to the script as opposed to like we all know, I mean, what it would feel like to be actually threatened. Right. I mean, one of the remarkable things about that video is how exceedingly calm he, the officer appears to be throughout it all. Now, no doubt he wasn't because he was shooting a person, killing somebody in cold blood. And I can't imagine he was that calm, but he, he calmly calls it in. He walks over. He very deliberately then goes and plants, apparently plants the taser. So he's, his calmness is surprising in the in the moment that you would think would be so disturbing and it's chilling that he handcuffs scott as opposed to trying to do any cpr or providing any medical care right that's another really awful part of that video so immediately what's come out of this is this idea that well everything should be videotaped at all times every police interaction should be videotaped so first of all emily do you think do you think we're heading to that we've but we've had this we had this fucking conversation Six months ago and six months before that. So well, why can, would we? Why would having the conversation well, again because we make saw a difference? The, because we saw the actual video. I mean, the new, when you said it was on the front page of the New York Times, it wasn't just the story was on the front page. You had tile photographs of it going down. And if you watch the video, as Emily said, it's, it's a live... You are watching a live murder. We didn't have that. Now you did in the Garner case, but... Yeah, you did in the Garner case. Yeah, all right. So did the Garner case change things drastically? It didn't appear to. So this is a slow, a slow struggle, right? I mean, these kinds of changes take a long time. There's a lot of institutional inertia. There's resistance, too, from some to police departments. On the other hand, a few police departments have tried this, and it's been relatively successful. So 
And, you know, the Justice Department has been at least recommending the idea of videotape. So, you know, I think will will more departments try to adopt this? Yes. Will it immediately, like, sweep the country and become a uniform change? No, that's not going to happen. Emily, you had, as we were emailing before deciding on the topics, you had this interesting analogy, which is if you look at education reform, there's the same sense that the union, the teachers unions, but rightly or wrongly, but the sense that teachers unions were resistant to change, but that there was an alternative education establishment in charter schools, which provided a sort of alternate view, which put a huge amount of pressure on public education to make changes, but that in that in law enforcement, there isn't an alter, there's no alterna policing to do that. Right. So, I mean, I was thinking about the idea, okay, most police, we can trust most police. I want to believe that as skeptical as these incidents make me, I still hold on to that. And yet, you know, police unions, fraternal organizations have a record of essentially supporting all police and not expelling the few bad apples. Some, I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating maybe, but, you know, to some degree resisting strong internal affairs departments um, and standing by almost everyone. And and we used to see that with teachers, right? And then there was publicity about rubber rooms and terrible teachers and teacher evaluations made easier to expose bad teachers. But I don't think that's really why the unions, the teachers unions changed. It was really this countervailing pressure from charter schools. And we're never going to have that alternative in law enforcement. So how do we see the same... Um, Um, you know, really like quick distancing and ejection of cops like Slager who have shown themselves to be so unworthy of the public Well, they did quickly eject. I mean, everybody will eject this guy and say this is an aberration. Right, but then isn't he, I mean, I don't mean to say this in a way that I I think he deserved to have been charged with murder, but I also feel like now he's going to stand for all these other cops who were not charged. Well, for some people he will. For others, he'll be the one guy who was horrible and awful and the rest of them aren't like this. Do you think that we do you think the lesson that we've learned is that actually there are a huge number of these incidents all the time and thank goodness we're now starting to videotape well, it so that we can learn it or that actually these incidents are really are aberrational that there are they're aberrational. Well, we're going to know when everybody gets video cameras which is what's going to happen. I mean, it's already happened in this police force. They've already said they're going to equip all the officers with with cameras and then we'll see and the test will be does this happen? Do people, do innocent people get gunned down or not innocent, but certainly not committing any kind of crime that deserves to be shot eight times in the back while you're running away at speed that is basically fast walking, which is what's so gruesome about this footage. Or what the police say, which is if we're, if we're constantly having to second guess our movements, it puts us, the police, in a dangerous position because we can't react fast enough in dangerous situations. And so the videotape will tell once we have lots and lots of footage of, of all of this going down. I mean, I do wonder, and I I wonder, what do you guys think? I mean, he, he, he's somebody, he may have taken the taser, Scott may have taken the taser from the officer, and the officer may well have perceived, although clearly uh, he was wrong, he may have perceived that Scott had the, the taser with him as he was running away. What should Slager have done in that circumstance? Well, certainly could have, tried to get Scott to stop and he you know could have He did try to get Scott yeah, to stop. Yeah, and he, he did. Right. So I guess right. Does a police officer in that situation have to let someone flee? Could they shoot but not shoot to kill? Would that be permissible? How dangerous is it to have someone run away with the taser? I mean in the end when you see this it seems like absolutely would choose having Scott on the list with the taser gun, but maybe that's not is that a fair thing to ask of the cop whose taser it is? Yeah. 
I think it is. It's fair to like not take a person. Right, and when you think about the standard about also, by the way, could have caught him, not running very fast. Like that's what's so gruesome about this. I mean, he wasn't not only a threat to the cop, he wasn't a threat to anybody else because he was barely. He wasn't running fast. He wasn't a jackrabbit. I mean, that's what makes this so. Can I ask one more question? You know, with both Ferguson and with this shooting, we're talking about relatively small communities in which there's a huge imbalance, mostly African-American population, mostly white police force. The residents today, and it was very eerie reading, it was like reading about Ferguson, everyone says, like, this isn't really a surprise. There's been a lot of tension with this police force here for a long time. This was like a simmering, essentially. But because these are smallish places as opposed to like Los Angeles post Rodney King or I guess New York, it feels like every single, right? I mean, there's been so much attention focused on Ferguson. What? I need a verb. Every single what? What would it take to make change community by community? Because you can have a big city, have a big city police department reform that affects the experiences of millions of people. Right. You mean because it has to happen, because these small these are sort of backwater police departments. It takes a while for things to filter down. It's it's not like you, there's not as much attention spotlight on it, which you would have in New York with the New York tabloid press. And right, or the spotlight of the media. The spotlight is like all about a small community and that, you know, Ferguson just had elections. So you can expect change, but it is small bore. It's not going to change everything. And yeah. Yeah. You, I thought the whole point of what the Justice Department, what Eric Holder was doing, was to sort of nationalize this issue so that it be, there were, you would create national standards for police behavior around these things. And maybe we're, maybe they're, we're getting there. It's just that it takes, we, right. we didn't get there this week. Right. And this is like the weakness, I suppose, in our federalist system that Eric Holder can say whatever he wants and try to push. But, you know, why is some community in, um, I don't know, Oregon, Wisconsin, whatever, going to be more likely to adopt those reforms because of what happened here? All right. So just as a last question, actually, I want to do a little audience poll because John mentioned watching the video. We've all watched this video. I would like to find out by vote, audible, Clap. audible clapping if you have watched the video or not watched the video. Have you watched the video? <laughs> have, you, have you not watched the video? Can I ask a third? Okay. Were you going to ask a third question? No. Have you uh, known about the existence of the video and chosen not to watch it? Interesting. So... John, you, you are really somebody who thinks a lot about this idea of restraint, and we were talking about the ISIS videos, which none of us have watched. Why do we watch this video? Why know. are we incumbent? Why do I feel like it's incumbent on me to watch this video and not to watch an ISIS video? Like, what is it that is I, in that? Yeah, I don't know. I got 7,000 words, and I still don't know the answer. Um, that's this piece. If any of you have been listening to the show for the last eight years... I'm going to tell you about a piece about restraint. You know what? The piece is just going to dribble out on the podcast. You never actually have to write it. You've gotten so, so much There's this view I've always had that if you could just get the conversation you have with your editor before you write the story to be transcribed, and you wouldn't have to go through the pain of actually having to write the story. Uh, and that's the way I feel about this one. So the, this story idea came out of all of these horrible moments of video footage that we all know about. And this is the most recent example, and also it's a particularly special one. But I mean, from the plane crashes that that TV shoves in our face whenever we're at the airport about to um, get on one, or um, the basketball leg injuries we're all forced to watch, or um, various football players abusing their wives. 
these videos are forced in front of us and we have to make a choice. And sometimes we don't get to make a choice because they're everywhere because the, the screens are the tile of our basically lives in the deli, in the, in the airport. So this is a slightly different case, though, because there's a public, there's something we We do learn, but video. we learn... We're explicit. When you hear that ISIS has beheaded someone and there's a video up, watching that video does not teach you anything you don't know from well, knowing that someone's Well, how do you know? Be- you haven't watched it, well, neither have I. It seems very unlikely that it's going to teach you anything you don't know, which is that this is an act of terrible brutality and someone dies at the end in a terrible way. In this case, you are learning something about an important issue of the day, which is police behavior, police behavior towards poor people, towards minorities, and you're watching it unfold in a, in a kind of secret way, in a way that you're never allowed to see right. in real life. And right. so it's a, right. it's a window on something which is yes. a citizen you want to know about and need to know about and, other, and have no other way of learning right. about. And you also other- have lots and lots and lots and lots of, lots of fictionalized versions of bad people shooting at cops, being criminals. Like, you know what that looks like. But this is a story out there that you now know what this looks like, which is basically treating another person like an animal. And it's also a chapter, as you started out by saying, in this kind of serial nightmare we've been living in which there have been other videos. So, I mean, I was immediately curious and I wanted to know how this case fit into all these other shootings that I've been following. So what I've been struggling with, though, is so let's assume you feel like this is a piece of information you have to watch because to be an engaged citizen in the world, you have to come to it. If you watch it, as I did this morning, it took over, you know, it, there went the morning because uh, you can't engage in ideas and think, oh, yeah, okay, whatever video and move on. So I think the, you have to, A, not have this stuff forced in your face, but I think also you have to, like, come up with a plan for how to deal with this. Like, when we all had a news, a dinner hour, you know, and this was on the evening news last night, which was a big choice for the broadcast networks to make, to put the murder of a person on TV, that doesn't happen. Like, you know, the news hour was 6.30, and you would kind of, that's where you would watch the news, and that you would sort of be ready for it. You have to, like, plan your moment of horrible intake of bad news, or else it just can take over your life. Maybe not. Maybe other people are coarsened to this, and they can watch it and move on. I can't. All right, let's move on. The... (laughs) Iceman. What kind of transition did you expect me to make in that moment, honestly? The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. One of the best recommendations that small businesses can take is to use Stamps.com. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping convenient and saves you time and money. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your computer. And once you try it, you won't go back to making time-consuming trips to the post office. To get you started, Stamps.com has a special offer for Political Gab Fest listeners like you. Just use our promo code GABFEST to get a no-risk trial with a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale that calculates the exact postage for letters and packages, so there'll be no guesswork, and up to $55 in free postage. So, for the special offer, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. So, Senator Rand Paul announced his presidential campaign this week. He is, he's staking out a new plot of land in the GOP, a sort of libertarianish place. He is hoping to cobble together an unusual coalition of, who is it, of stoners, of people who don't like the government snooping on them, of people who are skeptical about U.S. foreign policy intervention overseas. Prison what, reformers. Prison reformers. 
And the idea, John, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he can expand the base of the party, which has become basically a party of old white guys, and he can expand that base and bring in a new voters and thus, first of all, win himself the nomination and then be a strong candidate in the general election because he's going to get some of these young voters, some minority voters that no other candidate in the GOP field is going to get. Is this a credible case? Separate and apart from... Rand Paul, or I mean, can a human do this, or can Rand Paul do this? <laughs> can we just? Yeah, you, I get, you could make, you could answer in two. Yeah. It's not a credible. Sorry, I know you're the political analyst, but I have trouble taking this premise seriously. It just. You mean that I'm the political analyst, or? Because <laughs> I have to think about Because if that. you can't take it seriously, <laughs> that's we got, really bad. We got a work work to do. Go ahead. No. Well, you're, I feel like you maybe you'll pretend to take it seriously, and that we're dutifully giving each of these candidates. They're due, like we talked about Ted Cruz, and these people are not going to be president. That's just not going to happen. So I'm, I'm think, interested in this candidate. Is Rand Paul less going to be president than Ted Cruz? Do you, I don't, do you think like, he's a, is he a less Who's going to win the not candidate? president nomination? Yeah. Because <laughs> Michelle Bachman won the not he's president He's more interesting nomination. to me than Ted Cruz, but I think he's just as implausible. I, I don't know. It's a tough Is though. he just as implausible, John? Oh, God. Uh, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm the one who's supposed to be dutiful. Yeah. Uh, you so let's possible, uh, let's go back to uh, your original question. Um, okay. So first of all, let, before answering your original question, this is going to be very very interesting, right? It's a new gambit. It's not like the old style approach. So that's interesting. We should all be in favor of something that's interesting and shakes things up. It's hard to do for a couple of reasons. He's trying to be all things to all people. So if you, when you go out to Iowa and you talk to all the Ron Paul fans, these were people who, and Ron Paul could have a candidacy and he didn't need a lot of money because he had people who'd walk across the state for him. They loved him and they loved him in part because he was just constantly poking his finger in the eye of both the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment and the phonies and it was energizing to hear him constantly irritate the candidate, other candidates. Rand Paul is not exactly doing that. So he's not being as exciting as his father was, and yet for the establishment or the kind of your regular Republican, he's also not as, you know, he doesn't have the governing experience of Scott Walker and Jeb Bush. He doesn't have the foreign policy views of everyone else. He... Um, <laughs> Uh, he's not as much of a social conservative. A lot of the coverage of the, the announcement said he was trying to kind of appeal to everyone, which he was. I but mean, he's not going to get the social conservative vote. Well, uh, so he was trying to appeal to everyone, but the social conservatives. In, in his announcement, there was no piece of candy for that group. There was for all other groups. So I think he's kind of all over the place. The, what he does have is he, he, he has an appeal to younger voters. There's, the question is, can he grow the pie within his own party? Can he grow the pie of voters in the general election? And how much does he just need to be seen doing that? So there are a number of Republicans who think, gee, we've lost a lot of the popular vote in the last several elections. We need a new formula. And so all of the candidates are coming up with their own ways to, to solve that problem. And so this is his way of solving it. Your case needs to be just plausible enough to win in the caucuses because they're not a lot of you're not going to get a huge african-american vote in the iowa caucuses or in new hampshire so you know it, as a practical matter it's not going to pay off in a huge number of people voting but you could imagine a case in which somebody says hey here's my theory for the general election and people say oh okay i buy that now i'm going to vote for you also we've got so many people running in the republican party we need to kind of readjust our thinking in terms of these contests because you can win with 21% of the vote or 22% of the vote. And Rand Paul has a 
to use a cliche, he has a floor, which is to say he has a group of people who are really going to vote for him, more so probably than anybody other than Huckabee. But he also has a ceiling. So his Huckabee floor... Has a, Huckabee is the credible social concern. Well, in Iowa, he has he has a couple of things. He has the, the organization he wow. built last time. I, I'm sorry, he's I a true interrupted believer. your train of thought. He's a yeah. true believer for social conservatives. And third, he's been on Fox News for the last several years speaking directly to the constituency he's trying to get to vote for him. So he's had a lot of He's tilled a lot of ground beforehand. So I think he has a, a kind of floor. The question for Rand Paul is, can he, what's his ceiling? And the big problem there for him is foreign policy. So Emily, why are you so exceedingly skeptical of the Paul campaign? He just seems like too much of a maverick. And in the end, the 21%, if it comes without any kind of establishment backing, if it seems like it would never translate, I just don't, who are the Republicans how could there be enough Republicans or enough of anyone who, you know, don't want us to intervene at all and then also are very um, anti-government, anti-spending, anti-tax and think that prison reform is really important and think it's okay right. to support not no, vaccinating your kids? There's, it's such a weird amalgam right. of views. I don't, right. Like, who are right. these people? Well, it, do you yeah, think it, it, do you, it, if this weren't a moment where foreign policy has suddenly erupted as a big yeah. issue, if there weren't ISIS and, and would Russia, would he be a more credible candidate? I think he's he's been hurt by the calendar. No, well, yes. he's been hurt by the changing world. But, but that's when people reality. Elect, well, no, I mean, when people elect presidents, they go, huh, the world might change and we need... So what I think he has a, fun, he has a couple of fundamental challenges to his argument. One is that on domestic policy, he's saying... Don't trust anybody else because I've been there talking about liberty and being more pure than anybody else for ages. So no matter what anybody else says today, look at their past record. Okay, got him on domestic affairs. But on foreign affairs, he's making the exact opposite case, which is don't pay so much attention to what I said when I was campaigning for my dad and all this other stuff and how I say everybody in Washington wants ground troops everywhere at any war which sounds like what an isolationist would say. He's saying, don't listen to all the stuff I said in the past. I'm with you today. That doesn't work in that way. And also because it's not the situation that we have now. What people in the Republican Party voting on the question of foreign affairs are worried about is the situation we're going to have tomorrow. And when new and weird things happen, will he default to the right position? Shouldn't we as citizens, and, and me as a left-leaning citizen, Emily is a left-leaning citizen, John is, who knows what John is. Uh, but shouldn't we uh, be super enthusiastic about the Paul campaign in the sense that so much of the purpose of losing presidential candidates is to force other yeah. candidates to come to their position? Yes. And so shouldn't we be, regardless of whether you think he can be elected president, regardless of whether you think he ought to be a good president, as a citizen, you should be excited about the idea that he can, if, insofar as you believe in criminal justice reform and marijuana reform and you know less interventionism abroad, that you want that and less surveillance, that, that, that he's going to force yeah, the GOP to go there. On stage in the debate, absolutely. That's uh, let him, may he serve his function well. Yeah, that's why I started off by saying, you know, this is what's so exciting about him. Not only is he he has his views, but he's also a risk taker. So he's going to push the other candidates, and that's what Ron Paul used to do, which is just force other candidates to articulate what their views were in a specific way and and talk about things like the what gold is, standard. No, 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 no. And, <laughs> Sorry. That was mean. Sorry. He actually didn't talk about the gold standard that much. Uh, I mean, yes, he did. But in debates, he talked about to foreign policy hawks. He said, you know, he posed the question, is what America is doing overseas inciting and encouraging terrorism as much as it is tamping it down? And wherever you stand on that 
question, you should be able to handle it. And there were some candidates who didn't handle it so well. And so, yes, and that's why the Democratic Party is in such a mess, because there's nobody to test their candidate, which is bad for their candidate. And it's terrible for the conversation. Right. Because if you look at what look at what Barack Obama did with Iran, it is the culmination of a policy that he was forced to articulate by Hillary Clinton in the debates when he talked about sitting down with the Iranians with no preconditions. Huge debate in that party because they had a big fight and they had to find things where they differed so they could have a big fight over it. It's fantastic. It sends you into the nooks and crannies to go find things you disagree about and then have a big debate in front of people who are listening. That's fantastic. Let's let's actually pivot to that because the presidential candidates have become sort of like blockbuster movies. You open, you, everyone gets to open one, one a week. So Rand Paul opened this week, Marco Rubio opens next week, and Hillary Clinton will open the week after that. I think she's going to open big. It's gonna, she's going to do $140 million. Iron Man is in it's gonna all It's going to be better them. than Fast and Furious 7. But so, so, John, do you think that, or Emily, one of you, you're, you're the lady, so maybe it's a Hillary topic, so maybe you want to... That just for you. I did that just to just. I did that just think, to get that to get that rage in the audience. Um, I, think, I think that's what they call irony in Brooklyn. Is, is um, so she's opening her campaign quarter, headquarters in Brooklyn, and she'll probably be doing like live hangouts in the Bell House, like town halls in the Bell House. But is I wonder this, if there are any Hillary staffers. When you here. think about the Hillary, are there any Hillary staffers here? They will not admit it. No one's going to admit it. They, when you think about it, she has. You know, 20 months, really, uh, between now and the general, maybe, I mean, yeah, I think it's about 20 months. There's nothing for her to do. What is it that she is going to do during this period? And it's, I think what John points out is like, this is a very fraught moment for her, right? Right. Well, she could create a fake opponent or hope that a real one materializes because she sort of needs a sparring partner to work out all the kinks and have debates with and have these arguments with. But what if that doesn't materialize? I would say the best thing she could do would be to go really small and try to have the kinds of events where she connects with people because it seems like one of the mistakes she made the last time around, and now I am stealing from Jason Zangerly's piece in New York Magazine this week, was that she did, in the beginning of the primary season against Obama, she did a lot of like big, arid events where people didn't feel connected to her and she seemed distanced and cold. And it was only late in that primary season where she started doing a better job of connecting with voters. So if she has 20 months or like tons of time, at least before the real general election race starts, she should like go everywhere and talk to small groups of people. Small, like small, really small, like hot tubs. Yeah, that could be rough. How many yeah. of us are there in the yeah. United States? Yeah. You, is that what she's going to do, John? Tubs. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, huh. do you see how confidently I said that? Um, but yes. So the thinking is... She has only become surrounded by more of a sense of majesty, imperial. I mean, she's got the Secret Service. She's got the black SUVs. She's got all the titles, the, you know, Madam Secretary, former senator. So all of that contributes to this idea that she's a million miles away from regular people. And she just did this very imperious thing of using her private email server yeah, and then right. doing a bad job right, of right, explaining right, it. Right, and gives the speeches and all that. Right. Makes lots of money. So the way to fix that this is sort of uh, analysis and reporting. 
go to Iowa, right? So you can't go to, I mean, it's hard to You can visit I- every town in Iowa. Well, you yeah. can go and do in small events in Iowa. It's inexpensive in Iowa, which is good for campaign. Iowa is a swing state, so you want to spend time in Iowa, even though she doesn't have a can- uh, anybody to really face other than Martin O'Malley. It's not that she doesn't have anybody to face. She doesn't have yet a challenger, you know, really putting her through her paces. So she goes to Iowa because it's a swing state. You want to build an organization there. You also get to test out fun little organizational stuff there that you can then apply in other states. But also she gets a chance to be in close contact with voters in Iowa where they're habituated to that kind of thing. They expect it. And both for her image, but also for her kind of political message, she wants to be in smaller groups. So, so I she could move to Iowa for months. Yeah. And yeah. then like even if she fly doesn't to have New Hampshire and South e- Carolina. Even if she doesn't, yeah, in New Hampshire and other swing state and Nevada swing state. So she should just spend the time in those three states and that's, you know, probably what she will do. Um, so, yeah, do, the question her- is if you can pull that off, if you're her and you can pull that off when you've got like 17 news crews from J- Japanese TV, you know, I mean, where, wherever she moves, there is a huge, um, you know, band that follows behind her. Does any of that test her in the way that a no. campaign tests her? No, it no. doesn't. No, no. I mean, look at the way they were tested. They tested each other in 2008. They got in the foot race to be more specific about health care, about, about foreign policy, about the poor, until John Edwards dropped out and then nobody talked about the poor anymore and still haven't talked about the poor and since then. Although there are still, it turns out, 50 million poor people. So, yeah, that's a perfect example, actually. Um, you know, John Edwards talked about the poor. Democrats had to start talking about the poor when he dropped out of the race. Barack Obama promised that he would, um, you know, make that a constant source of conversation. And then when the political challenge disappeared, the conversation disappeared. So does there any chance that O'Malley or someone else could actually provide a real goad? And, and does Hillary's campaign quietly encourage the development of someone else's candidacy so that it becomes a real challenge? People who have her interest at heart want her to face a challenger. They think she's talented. But can you manufacture it? Uh, well, she's got lots of wealthy contributors who perhaps could, like, create a person. Um <laughs> They could Many of them are in Hollywood. There could be person. some actors who are. Um, so, what's the case for Martin O'Malley? Well, he's been a mayor. Oh, come a, on, we people. Are, there's only so much time, John. <laughs> Do this quick. All right. So he's been a mayor and a governor and dealt with like real people's problems on a really gritty day-to-day basis. Okay, enough. Let's and, move on. Uh, and that's the that's the opposite of her political experience. And so he can. And to the extent that people in the Democratic Party, at least in the base of the party, are looking for a really robust conversation about income inequality and voters are wondering if the candidate has lived a life or has come in touch with a life where you have to ride the bus across town when you're moving from when you're going from your first job to your second job. And, you know, and then you maybe have a third job and somebody who can speak with fluency about that from personal experience or from personal contact with it might have some kind of an inroad. Uh, but it's like a huge, massive hill to climb. Okay, let's move on to our third topic. I mean, I am interested, like, just in the Hillary thing. If anyone spots David, her in the neighborhood. David, this just in. President Abraham Lincoln was shot through the head last night at Ford's Theater and died this morning. The assassin is supposed to be J. Wilkes Booth, the actor. Secretary Stanton pronounced the president dead at 22 minutes after 7 o'clock, declaring, now he is for the ages. Andrew Johnson has been sworn in as the 17th president of these United States. Wow. That is, um, that's very surprising and sobering news. I mean, here we are at the end of the, end of the Great War that's divided us. 
And it's a moment of national reconciliation. And, and for this to happen just as our president entered his second term, is, is, it's, this is grave news. Let's consider this, though, Emily. What do you think the president's death does to the efforts to bring the secesh states back into back into the union. Why is that what you're concerned about now? The southern states? What about the people who live in them whose rights have been trampled for all these years? What do we do to help all these black people who are newly free who are going to need to gain their footing, are going to need help financially to get started, and who are going to need legal rights, which, you know, okay, we passed the 13th Amendment, but that does not get us where we need to go. Why is your first concern these states and their rights? I mean, I think, Emily, we're, you know, we've had a a terrible war, and I think it's, as I think President Johnson will articulate soon, this, (laughs) we have to stop thinking of ourselves as two nations, one blue and one gray, that we're really, we're a kind of blue-gray nation, now and that that the important thing that we need to do is to bring these states back into the union very quickly to let them recover from the war and for the government in Washington to sort of focus on things like the transcontinental railroad to focus on national issues and not to concern itself so much with with what's happened John Look, it's <laughs> that transcontinental railroad that's you one know, for the yeah, I'm the sure transcontinental all, railroad look, is a very important it, issue Emily so you guys are both nuts. <laughs> Let's think for a minute here about the horror of the thing. I mean, my, you know, my mind is a world. There's not just the horror of his death, but you can't walk uh, anywhere now in the aftermath without passing a building covered in crepe. People are in tears in the street. It's impossible to pass anybody who's not... <laughs> wearing a black armband. (laughs) And this is the last casualty of the war. There will be other people who die. This is the last casualty of the war. And, I mean, as you know, my relationship with the president was strained. But... It was? He was never clear whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, John. (laughs) And it never will be. But, you know, a week before this happened, he had a dream. And he went, in the dream, he went down into the White House and saw an aide who said, who he asked what happened. And they said, the president is dead. And yet, in conversation, he always said, I could wear chain mail and never be protected. No one will come assassinate the president. And so, like, he called his own killing, his own death. John, I, I mean, I, I applaud your sense of the gravity of the moment, and I think it's you, you're right that this is a this is a horror unknown in American history. We have, after you know, nearly a hundred years, we have not had a, a president killed. We've never had a our leader killed, and this is a change. But this is a, also a moment where the tide of history is moving very, very quickly. We have the war has ended, and we have to start to make very fast decisions about what's going to happen. And the time we spend in mourning over President Lincoln, a great captain of our country, the time we spend in mourning is time that is not spent in bringing Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina back into the Union and getting our troops home out of the South and in moving the country forward. And, 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 and so I'm interested in like how we're going to 
deal with the radical Republicans who are going to be attempting to, so, to okay. foist things right. on this country when really we need to move forward. So his idea was keep the union, right? So how do you keep the union? Do you punish or do you forgive? Right? You want to re-knit the union? So what do you do with all those Confederate soldiers? It's okay. You're back in. Just pledge allegiance to the Union and you're back I in. I just don't see how the Confederate soldiers are our priority right there now. There are more of them, and they are going to live in this portion of the country. What are you going to do with them? But you can't ship them off to sea. there are all these people who literally are destitute and need sustenance, need help figuring out how to live their own lives. And this is the window. This is the moment of opportunity to give them the kind of legal rights and the beginning of political power. And they don't even have equal rights under the law. It's yeah, very unclear who they are, legally speaking, and how we're going to make sure that they rise up. Yeah, except that if you give them the vote, you'll have a revolt in the North, as in well the North? as the South. Why? Why is there a Vulcan? Because in of the all North? the people in the North who's, who uh, are fine with a union... And maybe even it's okay that they're free. But only Thaddeus Stevens and a few others feel like they should well, get I mean, the I vote. think you, what you forget is that Emily is sort of an apologist for Senator Stevens. That, that is, that's, <laughs> that, that she is a, she's a stenographer for, for Senator Stevens' views. I will take that over being an apologist for Andrew Johnson any day. <laughs> You know, think, it, is, it's, it is worth noting President that Johnson, will, you know, is going to be I, I interested, Emily, actually, let's let's talk about this. What do you think President Johnson is going to have to do to win your vote in 1868? Oh, wait, you don't have a vote. <laughs> I forgot. But I have a voice on this stage and I don't think there's anything. I think the idea that Andrew Johnson is going to be the answer and that he can really stand in Lincoln's shoes. I mean, this is an enormous loss that the country is going to pay for for a very long time. And 150 years. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the radical Republicans um, with whom I do indeed at this moment identify, if never again, are going You're to all have over to the band place. together and, and pass laws with a lot of strength over Johnson's veto so that we can make sure to protect the rights of the people I've, who should be reconstructing the South. And those are not the people who just fought against us. Those people need to wait in line. I mean, Emily, you're I'm, I'm correct in thinking you're a Hebrew, right? You're of the, the Hebrew religion? Yes. Yes. So you know that the person who's going to enforce these is all these changes that you want to make in the South and the suffrage for the former slaves is General Grant, who, is, who you know expelled, tried to expel the Jews of Tennessee during you the war. Went, wait, okay. Do you know that? I mean, how do you feel as a, as a Hebrew about that, about General Grant being the person who's going to carry these orders out? Well, in fact, I am still stuck in my shtetl somewhere in Poland, but (laughs) (laughs) but I think that is not the priority right now. As as important as religious freedom and religious rights are, and and in fact, I think we could pass the kind of law and constitutional amendment that would guarantee equal protection to everyone and would include religious minorities along with racial minorities. So, John, let's, I mean, it's awfully soon to do this, but... You know, I think one thing we want to think about is President Lincoln's legacy. How would you, of our 16 presidents, do you think he's in the top quarter with, with Presidents Washington and Jefferson and Polk? Or where do you think, or is he down with President Pierce and, and Buchanan, perhaps? Where do you think and he's going to be? Don't forget Millard Fillmore. Uh, Zachary Taylor, John Tyler, William Henry Harrison. Well, William Henry Harrison, we know he's 16. Um, it was a terrible cold. Well, you've got Washington, Adams, Jefferson... Monroe, Adams, Jackson. So you got, you know, through the first seven. So, might, so Lincoln perhaps not so the So Lincoln top half. maybe not, you know. I mean, you've got half of the country thinks he's a tyrant. 
you know, I mean, he did run roughshod over the Constitution in, in furtherance of I did, his it's aims. It's funny, we didn't hear a lot about that from Emily, did we? About the suspension, because I thought, I mean, I believe that Emily was, is a graduate of I'm a pragmatist. Yale, Yale University Law School. Means versus ends on this one. It was a war. He unified the country. He saved the Union by fighting this terrible war. He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stop right there. I think in 150 years, people are going to really support that view. <laughs> Do you think they'll care a lot about the Transcontinental Railroad? Yes, of course they will. Yeah, because of uh, the Civil War changed the way, or I'll pose it as a question. It's a collect, the first act of collective action of this country. I mean, when the revolt against the British was individual colonies banding together, but mostly as individuals. This creates a situation in which the United States is bound together in a, with a sense of union like it's never been before. So the Continental Railroad stitches that union together further as far as commerce is concerned. So we've had it now in war and in commerce. So the two are entwined. Will you support an amendment to the Constitution that would guarantee equal rights and due process of law for everyone? I mean, I really want to see what President Johnson's going to say about that. I don't think he has long in the job. Now we have a word from a new sponsor. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Dr. Rowell's Tonic Tablets. (laughs) We come with glad tidings for all who are weak with a message of hope to delicate women, puny children, and weak men. There is a new way to tint pale cheeks with the glow of health, new life for weak stomachs, weak nerves, and weak kidneys. Are you weaker, thinner, paler by the day with no energy, no appetite or strength, no desire for work or recreation, nervous, peevish, sleepless, sick of heart, and sore of limb? These are the conditions of countless sick men and women throughout these United States who are awaiting a message of hope and cheer. There is no excuse for you to be sick, for there's now a medicine that will heal you. Dr. Rowell's tonic tablets purify the blood, aid the kidneys, soothe the stomach, and sweeten the breath. Dr. Rowell's tonics, which contain extracts of quinine, sarsaparilla, and pure cocaine of China, also (laughs) regulate the liver and drive every single impurity out of the body. And, of course, there's a special offer for GabFest listeners. (laughs) Telegraph the word GabFest to Dr. E. Rowell, Utica, New York, for a free one-week supply of tablets with your order. I did. It's amazing. I had a cold earlier this winter. Look how hale and hearty I am. That's right. Yesterday, he didn't have a beard. (laughs) I want to learn Morse code so we can all telegraph that. We're going to telegraph. The telegraph operator can do it for you, Emily. Dr. Rowell, You just have to wait in line, like at the post office. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Rowell's tonic tablets They make sick people well Back to the show Let's go to uh, Let's go to cocktail chatter When you're, when you're uh, Having your tonic Tablet with a I don't know what you would take it with I'm not sure but Take it with the gin Maybe it has quinine in it So have it with some gin There's nothing that doesn't go well with gin What are you going to be chattering about? Oh, good. Can I go, go first? You can go John's first, Emily. always better. So I started watching, belatedly, the show Silicon Valley in the last... By a vo- oh, all right. If people are watching that show, they watched it. At least a few of you out there. I watched it on the plane with one of my sons, which maybe shows very poor judgment on my part. In fact, surely it does. Um, and the show is really funny and in some ways so spot on about Silicon Valley. And I especially love the Peter Thiel character. But... 
the presentation of women in this show, while it may be accurate in terms of portraying how the gender imbalance in Silicon Valley, is completely infuriating. This is a house of men. Finally, a, a woman coder appears at a conference late in season one, and she doesn't know how to code. She really sucks at it, and she has to ask the guys for help coding. I had, like, steam coming out of my ears, and I kept thinking of a bunch of Stanford students I talked to um, earlier this year. And in college at Stanford, the number of women majoring in computer science is really growing. They are there. They are presence. They're not tokens. And for them to see this show and have no representation at all of any woman with any computer science skills, I just think it's completely infuriating. So Mike Judge, come on, next season, let's show us a girl who can code. John, you, you go, it? David. All right. All right, I'll, I'll go. Yours is good. I'll go. So I, I got an interesting email this week from uh, an old friend of mine named Martin Tom, and it just, this is not, there's not really a peg to this, except that Martin emailed me, and it was just, I, I just want to tell a story about him. So I was, uh, 12 years ago, I was t- traveling in Africa doing a story for Slate about famine, and I was supposed to go from Ethiopia uh, which had a famine, down to Zimbabwe, which also had a famine. And I had a connection in a country that I had not heard of. Or I'd heard of the country, but it was a city I hadn't heard of. So it was Lalongwe, Malawi. I had to make my airplane connection in Lalongwe. And I get to Lalongwe, and I was catching an Air Zimbabwe plane. And you get to Lalongwe, and there is no Air Zimbabwe plane because Air Zimbabwe has decided that they can't send the plane, and they're not going to send it for several more days, at which point I had a ticket home. So I was stuck in this country that I didn't, know anything about and with nothing to do. And as I was walking to the terminal, a, a young man, a Malawian, struck up a conversation with me and he was, he turned out his name was Martin Tom and he was a Pentecostal pastor. And he was a Pentecostal pastor and he was one, on his way back from uh, a revival meeting in Uganda. And he just, we just started talking. He was incredibly nice. And then I got stranded. I was there at customs and I couldn't get into the country and they finally just gave me a, like a one day visa. And Martin waited for me, and he was, and he said, you know, why don't you come home with me? And so I was like, well, why not? Um, and, and so we started talking. We were waiting at the airport. And we started talking. He was ex- like excited beyond excited that I was Jewish, and he kept saying, you know, we're both sons of Abraham. You're a son of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. And he just kept saying, you know, the Lord has sent you to me for a reason, David. And I was like, I don't think so, but <laughs> maybe. And. And so uh, he brings me home, and he um, introduces me to his wife and his baby, who cries. Who the baby had never seen a white person before, and was like cried every time he saw me. It was really, it was, it was disturbing. And he actually gave me the shoes off his feet. He gave me his sandals because um, my sh- I can't remember why, but like he, for some reason I didn't have you my had shoes. No shoes. I you had no shoes that I could that wear, airport. and so he gave me his sandals. Um, and he put me up and, and showed me around town for a couple of days and was unbelievably, he was just like the most hospitable, wonderful, generous host. And he kept saying, you know, the Lord sent me to you for a reason. And, and so I end up going home. But I wrote a story um, for Slate because I, you know, I couldn't write a story about going to Zimbabwe because I wasn't there. So it was, I just wrote a story about this guy and how he'd been nice to me and how he was a Pentecostal pastor. And so what happened was Martin at that point had a he didn't have. He had a church of fifty people that met in a in a basement um, in the long way, and he he just quit being an insurance salesman, and he, that was what he was trying to do with his life. and And so I wrote the story about him, and I started to get emails from 
Pentecostals in the U.S. saying, we hear about Brother Martin's mission in Malawi. It's great. Can we get in touch with him? And so I started to put Pentecostals in the U.S. in touch with Martin back in Malawi. And then one of the leading Pentecostal pastors in the U.S. said, like, I'm going to go do a mission. I'm going to do a revival in Malawi because it seems like there are a lot of you know Christians in Malawi. And and so he had Martin come in and and be his uh kind of sidekick for this for this mission in Malawi. And this happened over and over again. And ultimately, Martin, this was during the Bush years, and so we started to get some of that money that the Bush folks were spending on faith-based programs overseas, and Martin got some of that. And he became the leading pastor in Malawi <laughs> because of all this money that started to come in and all this American effort. And he he's sort of become like the James Carville of Malawi. He's like the, also the, the campaign manager for, for the leading presidential candidate. And it was this weird thing where he thought, okay, it's going it, to, you've sent, God has sent you, David Plotz, to me for a reason. And it turned out that he was right. <laughs> and, and it was, it's been like, it's like as a person who is, an, you know, is an atheist and a Jew and, a, and someone who has absolutely no patience at all for the theology that Martin teaches and, you know, no, no interest in it. His, like, the, the fact that this act of kindness from him and this act of generosity, this act of faith of him, you know, 12 years ago has led in, in, in for him in return to this, this incredible prosperity and opportunity uh, is sort of humbling. Anyway, that's, it Does was Does that make just, you like the patron saint of Malawi? Uh, <laughs> he was, his, uh, no, I don't think so. But he did invite me to the presidential inauguration, but his candidate lost. So I didn't, oh. I didn't get to go. Right, he lost by like one, one point. What is yeah. your chatter, John? That was fantastic. Plus, you got a, you, you did, you got a chatter out of it. So you got something, too. There you, you know. go. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the you know, preservation of your soul for eternity, but it is a chatter. <laughs> <laughs> Every journey starts we, we, with a yeah, first step. Exactly. Yeah. In someone else's sandals. <laughs> I find myself... Uh, at a deficit here after those two. No, you have it's a un- great... You're going to pull out your great pamphlet. Just do it. Come on. <laughs> I'm very nervous. Okay, so I'm going to read to you from a little pamphlet I have here called The Serious Lesson in President Harding's Case of Gonorrhea. <laughs> now... Some of you may remember this from childhood. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing goes better with milk and cookies at night. Um, Dramatic reading? This year, well, it's, it's going to be a, a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> so it starts by saying the late President Harding suffered from the plague of untaught youths, and we should add the plague of uninformed or careless adults, the all-too-familiar venereal disease known as gonorrhea. Now, you may wonder why I'm reading you um, from this pamphlet. No, well, I wonder why it exists. Well, pamphlet. that's, well, yeah. So I came across this in some presidential research that I've been doing about old, you know, old presidents. And you may remember also, by the way, there was a gabfest that I wasn't on, damn it, that, uh, in which you talked about his love letters. President Harding, as everybody will remember, was, was quite an amorous fellow. And, um, and he had many, he had several affairs. His longest one was with Carrie Phillips, who he described in his letter as having pillowing breasts uh, and, and a variety of other things that I won't go into. But you had a long discussion. Leibovitch was on the show about I this. I it was Jeff Goldberg. Anyway. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Was it go Goldberg? on. Oh, yeah. okay. Anyway, Randy Fellow. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so what struck me <laughs> is that this exists. And what this is, is it's one of these pamphlets 
it's not the only one. Uh, I mean, there, there's the only one about Harding. He wasn't that randy. Um, <laughs> but they were called Little Blue Books, and they were published between, under a variety of different names between 1919 and 1978 by a person named E. Haldeman Julius. And these pamphlets were basically like the, for me anyway, in my theory of the case, like the internet before we had the internet, which was that they covered, you, you could sign up and you'd get five of them in the mail and they came under, the, uh, they were called Appeals Pocket Series, People's Pocket Series, the 10 Cent Pocket. Um, and they would come to your house and they would be on crazy different subjects. I mean, some of them would be very straight ahead. Uh, one was um, how to write business letters. So you'd get your packet of five, and one would be how to write business letters and Harding's gonorrhea. <laughs> so, um, but I guess my point about the internet is that they were all, they had like, they had the secrets. They had the stuff that you didn't read about in school, that your parents didn't teach you about, that you didn't hear about at church. And it was like this strange, amazing, wonderful stuff that was hidden from you. And the others, some of the others in the, in the selections, there was something called the Knowledge of Life series, which uh, had a, a series. That sounds like Scientology. You mean my previous description or no, the, the knowledge, knowledge of life? life well, except the knowledge of life series was um, all about it, one of the books was called the sex factor for men. Oh, and there was the sex factor for women, and this was where you learned about all the stuff that your parents ran from the room and didn't talk about. Then there was um, wild cats in petticoats, a garland of desperados. <laughs> so you could read that in your uh, leisure what, hours. That may have been what President Harding had read. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, where are these wildcats? Um, so what is the serious lesson? Is there a teacher? So, oh, okay, campus? sorry. And then my other one was a tour sorry. of Europe for stay-at-homes. But anyway, the reason I... <laughs> which is really like the internet, right? Nah, I don't have to go anywhere. Look, shtad. Um, but what I love about them is both the antiquated writing and this idea of like letting you in on secrets from a time where it, conspiracies kind of seem gentle and... Um, so I'll just read you the, the actual case they make, though. Makes perfect sense, right? Uh, we're doing this uh, unusual thing and calling attention forcibly to the venereal malady which afflicted the late President Harding. We are making a sensational story of this hidden chapter in President Harding's life. We are daring to speak plainly. We're casting overboard conventional notions of politeness and of what is or isn't fit to print. It is our conviction that the truth is fit to print, and that it is especially our duty to print the truth when it involves a great lesson of health, happiness, and social sanity. False shame and silence have ruined thousands. Ah, the toll is countless of those who have suffered misery and defeat and the deepest tragedy because they were victims of the ignorance and obscurantism cultivated by Puritans who opposed plain speaking about sex. So... Totally modern, thorough, and reasonable, but in, like, 1931, was scandalous and secret and crazy. I find it bizarre and hypocritical for you, John, who can't stand it when we talked about John Edwards's peccadilloes, to be be like, oh, let's talk about Warren Harding's VD. (laughs) It's okay if it's an old-timey font? Well, that's true of basically anything. Um... (laughs) But also, I think the case is that more people suffered from gonorrhea in the United States and the world than suffered from getting caught in a hotel while visiting their mistress, which was the case with John Edwards. So I think the public policy case they make here is slightly stronger than the one you were making. As you know, my concern for public health knows no bounds. (laughs) Um, Anyway, and I also love, like, the way they're 
this this is a reprint, of course, but they were all like packaged in like well, this is a field notes, but they were all like these, <laughs> like I love little it's a really little, old field little, notes. Um, it's like falling apart. Well, it's just a month old. Okay. I just carried it in my back pocket. But it, it, the point is, they had these like this neat little like collect the whole set. You know, they had a kind of I don't know a nice antiquated look to them too. So it appeals to every one of my fetishes, <laughs> other than the actual subject matter of the book. Our intern who helped organize the show is Tarek Barrett. Our producer and the managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. Aaron Bergen organized this live show for us. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Every single person in this room, go leave a comment and rating, please. It really helps us. Uh, you can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. Thank you to the Bell House for having us again. We will come back. We, went, we were here for Kennedy's assassination, the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, 150 for Lincoln. Not sure when we'll be back again. Not sure what the next good assassination anniversary is. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. We're not going to have time for all questions. I'm just warning you. So, Sorry. Sorry. Quick question, and sort of related to last week's topic as well. And last week, you all were discussing about Iran and the issues maybe for the presidential campaign. And one thing that was brought up when David was talking about Iran and how it's a lot more normal and he was getting chastised and it's a lot more dangerous, actually, than is being portrayed. My question is this, is why is it today with the Iran deal that there's all this talk about the dangers of Iran and all the things that could happen with this, and yet there's absolutely no talk at all from these same people raising alarms about the country of Saudi Arabia, which is so much further along in terms of supporting some of the worst types of terrorism out there, especially the sort of the Sunni radicalism that is the sort of kind of terrorism that actually does go international, um, a country that does not recognize Israel, a country that is poisoning these uh, all over the world in terms of what they are promoting, and yet no politician pays a price ever for their associationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, and secondly, is there some sort of sophisticated lobby? Everyone always talks about the Israeli lobby. It's a bit of a, you know, too much. Does the Saudi lobby, is it really that strong on Capitol Hill that nobody's able to speak against this country? Well, I certainly think there's a lot to your point of view about Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you think about where the where the dangerous uh, Islamic radicalism is coming. It's coming from, not necessarily from Saudi Arabia or the Saudi government, but from people who are sort of connected closer to them than they are certainly connected to the Iranian government. And yeah, I mean, the, the ties that the Saudis have in Washington are enormous. They've, they've cultivated them incredibly well over the years. There have been books written about them. I think, don't they have, the Saudis have very close ties to the Bush family in particular, right? Because they all, this oil culture. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a very legitimate question. It's a no more, it's, it's a less democratic country than Iran. And it's a, it's not to say that, that, you know, there's a contest and Iran is great and Saudi Arabia is terrible, but it's, I agree like that the fact that, that we give the Saudis a complete free pass on these issues is strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's part of one is in 
plays ball with the United States and one doesn't. I think it's a great question, set of questions. One thing that's been explained to me or one example that's been given to me as for why this relationship exists the way it does is, and so I'm a little out of my depth here and I'm just repeating what's been told to me, is that if you look at our relationship with Russia and Russia, if you keep oil prices low, Russia doesn't have as much money coming in from their biggest single uh, moneymaker. And so how do you keep oil prices low? Um, that's basically Saudi Arabia helps us, helps the United States do that by agreeing to keep oil prices low. And so Saudi Arabia is helping the U.S. put pressure on Russia. Now that's one of, there somebody who's expert in this knows lots of other ways in which the, you know, the, the United States is helped by Saudi Arabia and therefore looks the other way in the same way the United States does in a lot of other instances. But that would just be one thing I'd point to. Okay, we're just going to do three more questions. I'm sorry to all you folks back there. We, we just don't have time. Thank you. Hi, Scott from Philadelphia. I just want to thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for a years of joyful, insightful political coverage. I wake up every Friday and just say, woot, it's Political Gap Fest Day. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All, right. all right, so my question is, it seems like the Democrats are walking into a huge tactical mistake. So uh, Hillary's presumptive. And uh, to me, just understanding time. So what's happening is we elected our first black president. We reelected our first black president. The Democrats think we're immediately going to elect our first female president. To me, just understanding the elasticity of history, time and math means this is a deadlock loss if the Republicans run any traditional candidate. Am I wrong and why? Uh, well, you're right. It's, it's not um, often the case that also you have the... Th- Third. The third. third. Um, the way you do, on the other hand, you've got demographic changes and other changes that help Democrats. Um, so in furtherance of your theory, especially if the Republican candidate, say, comes from Florida and has a good chance of winning that state, which um, takes a big and important battleground state off the map. I think there's a lot. I think there's too much in play right now to, to argue either that you're, that you're totally right and it's a lock or to really make and build a strong case against you. I mean, so, you you know, the first woman candidate ever, perhaps to be a party nominee, who knows what that's going to do to the woman's vote. And that's going to matter in, in a lot of those battleground states. And so what's that going to mean? And what's the Republican primary going to look like? There's a lot of money. Ted Cruz's super PACs just announced today they raised $31 million. That's going to drop very, that's going to drop on someone's head. And what's that going to do? And then just, and then multiply that by all the candidates. Everybody's going to have an outside force that's going to smash their opponents. Um, So what's that going to do to the Republican side? Now, they may spend a lot of the money beating up on Hillary Clinton. She's going to be, you know, the first if things continue as they are, the first really uncontested candidate since 1908. And so she's going to be a sitting duck for all these attacks from all these Republicans. So what's that going to do to her? And I just think there's so many variables. But you, I mean, it's a great way to think about this race. That I think the fact that she's a woman is the best thing she has going for her in this sort of third term scenario because it's exciting. It's a first. It's trailblazing. It's much better than being the second Clinton. <laughs> Hi, Byron from Brooklyn. So I'm a big fan, and I've really appreciated the way that you guys have acknowledged that when you speak about issues that affect, that directly affect people of color, that you always, you haven't always had a person of color on the panel to bring a different and relevant perspective. I wanted to know from each one of you if you really felt like the latest instance of uh, Walter Scott being murdered in South Carolina was really different because each of you. It seemed like 
you thought there was something about this was that was really legitimately different that would change the way that people of color are treated by law enforcement. Because given that Trayvon Martin, the child, was killed without consequence, and Eric Garner was murdered, a police officer murdered Eric Garner with his bare hands on video without consequence, I have a hard time believing that Walter Scott's case will legitimately change the way that people of color are treated in this country. I don't know. I don't, wouldn't presume to know the answer, but they're different. So the Garner case was different because although Garner was murdered by a cop, it was not a cop who was attempting to murder him. It was a cop who murdered him by accident is the wrong term, but he murdered him doing something that probably wouldn't have murdered other people. And in the case of, uh, in Ferguson, there was no video, there was no, there was such ambiguity about what the evidence was. I guess I think that the, that this case, the Walter Scott case may be different because it is, the cop is attempting to murder and succeeds in murdering this person who is clearly no threat and is innocent. And there is not a lot of, there's going to be, I mean, he'll mount a defense, which will claim he's in danger, but it's, I think it's the more extreme case of these two and whether it will change what happens, I have no idea, but I do think it is, it occupies a different space. I hope. And I guess the other way of looking at this is these are building blocks. This is a long-term struggle. Um, It's not going to change overnight. And this may not be the case that creates national change quickly, but there's a momentum building and we can all see what happened here in a way that's very stark. It's hard for me to imagine the kind of backlash defense of this police officer. And in each of the other cases, maybe with the exception of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old who was killed in Cleveland, there's been a a real... Well, now having said that, I guess there's already a a fund for the defense of Michael Slager. So maybe I'm wrong about that. One more question. Here we go. It seems to me like uh, with all due condemnation of of Rolling Stone publishing Hokum every 30 years, it doesn't seem to me any worse than you see nightly on Fox News. We've lost Stephen Colbert. We're about to lose Jon Stewart. How do we get the Columbia? I think Columbia they can still be found. <laughs> I, think, I hope so. I believe, yeah. How do no, we get there's the like an app for that. To, you can... to do an analysis of Fox News Daily. I think they've done it. I mean, that's everyone. It's 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 a known thing. It's the problem. It's that it doesn't it doesn't uh, matter to the audience. Matter to the audience, right? So that's the the issue. Thank you guys so much. This is a great show. Please come back to the Bell House. We love being here with you. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>